I so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Awesome. All right. You guys may be seated. Thank you, Nate. So I've entitled this message, The Significance of a Story. And I want to take a little different approach to looking at this psalm than maybe we're used to. Um, but I'm a little different type person. So um, I'm not Rick. I'm not Jonathan. I'm not Derek. I'm me. And I'm going to celebrate that this morning. And uh, I hope you guys are ready for the ride. So, um, you know, one thing I want to say about stories is each of us have a significant story. And I would argue that your story, my story, is just as significant as King David's story, King Solomon's story. We're every bit as much a child of the Creator as they were. Uh, we have a life and we experience different experiences and walk through different pains and joys. and It's all significant. It's all part of our story. And I wanted to give you an analogy to picture what our lives are like. Life is like a Ferris wheel, okay? There's a revolving door to get on, revolving door to get off. We all get to ride the, the carnival ride about the same amount of time, 70 to 90 years if we're lucky, if we don't, if our life isn't ended tragically or we get hit by a bus or whatever. And if we just sit on that Ferris wheel and plug our ears and close our eyes and, and keep our mouth shut and we just go for the ride and, and then we get off and we die and we don't share any of our experiences, and if everybody did that with their life, we would just be in a stagnant drudgery of, of existence. There, you know, we wouldn't learn anything from technology before us. We wouldn't learn anything from medicine and history. And we wouldn't have anything to, to move on into the future. And so our stories are significant because when we share our stories with each other, it gives us insight. It gives us knowledge and wisdom when my grandmother shared all of her heights of wisdom when she was 97, uh, up until she died at 97, I just felt like I could sit there and just soak it in because her story was so significant. And you guys, I want each and every one of us to know you were living a significant story. The, the experiences and the events that make up your life are significant, and, and God has a purpose and a reason for them. And... Um, so we're going to look at Psalm 42 in light of the author's story, David. And um, most scholars say that David is the author of, of Psalm 42. Um, it, it begins, uh, if you're looking at your Bibles, um, it begins by saying uh, that it's the beginning of the second book of the Psalms. There's five books uh, in the Psalms. So, and it's a, it's a masculine. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but it's, it's a mascal for the sons of Korah. And the, I did a little bit of research, and mascal is like a difficult word to translate, but essentially it's a song of instruction. And 
because of the content of the psalm, most, most people agree that David was the author because of the experiences described. Um, and the sons of Korah is kind of an interesting story. If you want to read about it, it's in Numbers chapter 3, um, way back in the day with Moses and Aaron. Uh, there was this group of men who were charged with carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the, t- the table, the lampstand, some very sacred holy items. When the tabernacle moved from spot to spot, these guys had to, were charged with carrying these items, and they had to carry them on their backs. Other items were allowed to be packed up into carts and rolled and towed with donkeys and what camels, I guess. And, um, but these guys had to carry the holy items on their back, and they became bitter about this. And this guy, Korah, decided, I don't want to do this anymore. And he got 250 of his friends together, and they were basically starting a mutiny. And Moses caught wind of it, brought brought Korah in with these 250 men. And I believe God told Moses, tell, tell every, all the rest of the Israelites to scatter away from where these guys' dwellings are in their households. And God literally opened up the earth, and these 250 people, men's uh, households were swallowed into the earth, and the earth closed. All their wives, children, animals, tents, whatever, all swallowed into the earth, and then the 250 men that were there, fire came down and smoked them all. <laughs> and that was, that was Korah, but his sons remained. A, a few of his sons remained, and their descendants uh, became essentially the worship leaders. That's a really very op- oversimplified explanation, but the sons of Korah... Um, Samuel was a descendant of the sons of Korah, and um, they became the musicians, the the worship leaders. So they're my homies. Uh, But anyway, this psalm was most likely written for for these guys by David. So I don't know if you're like me, but I've been a Christian a long time. My mom says since I was in preschool. (laughs) I don't know when I actually became a Christian, but I've been hearing Bible stories my whole life. I've gone to Bible college. I know a lot of people that are Bible scholars. I've heard the stories, but I have a hard time keeping it straight in my mind. I don't know if anybody else uh, relates to that, but there's in the Bible narratives of the Old Testament, there's so many people, so many things happening, and it's, it can become complex. So I have this nerdy chart that we're going to look at today, and basically, uh, hopefully, it, it helps, um, but, but um, we're going to look at the story of David. David had a significant story, and, um, and as it relates to Psalm 42, so, so David was 70 when he died, working backwards, so he actually, he didn't live like a super-duper long time, but he ruled in Israel for essentially 40 years. Seven years he spent um, in Hebron, which is currently a Palestinian uh, town, and there's, it's mostly Palestinians, and then I believe like 700 Israelis live there today. But for the first seven years, from age 30 to 37, 
he ruled there, and then he became king of Israel at age 37. I'm 40, so he was three years younger than me, and he became king, and he experienced two years um, of relative peace and success, and he was, he was kind of like Israel's golden boy. Like, he, was, he had it going on. He was successful in military you know, defeats, and he, was, uh, he slayed Goliath, and he you know, slayed lions out in the field. And he was, he was, in 2 Samuel, it says, God was with David. Okay, but we all know what happened. David uh, saw this woman bathing from his palace, and he just went with it. And we all know what happened. He slept with Bathsheba. She became pregnant. It's like, oh, no. Sent guys out into the battlefield where he should have been anyway and to murder her husband. And now it's like not so much the golden boy of Israel anymore. This guy is screwing his life up. And, um, and then we know that um, Nathan confronts David and from there, things really start to kind of work their way down. Um, but just a little background on Psalm 42. We believe that David is writing these words from an exile he experienced. It lasts about four years, and there's a story behind the exile. It's right here. I don't know if you can see, but right here between 983 and 979. David had um, his, his first child with Bathsheba actually was struck ill and died. And, um, but after, after that, his next child was, ended up being King Solomon. Um, but he had other children, and one of his sons named, was named Amnon. And Amnon had a crush on his sister. Okay, this is really bad. And he just conspired this, this evil plot to take advantage of his sister, and he did. And after he had taken advantage of her, uh, he just cast her out like trash. And David's other son, Absalom, was not cool with that. He was very upset and basically grinded his teeth for two years until Absalom had the chance to isolate Abnum, or Amnon, and he had him murdered, which devastated David uh, because now his son was dead. So Absalom went into hiding, and then um, there was a short period of time, and then, and then Absalom and David made peace, and David forgave Absalom. But what happened then was Absalom... Uh, started to gain favor with the people of Israel and basically convinced them that David shouldn't be your king, I should. And David caught wind of that, and he fled. And he fled to the hills and the mountains where he grew up, where he shepherded, where he killed the lions. And, um, and it is from this context that we believe Psalm 42 was written. Uh, he's spending four years hiding in the hill country and, and, and looking back at what he had. And it's like, uh, and I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but 
just looking back, why, why did I screw things up so, so much? Or, or, man, life was so good back then. So um, what we have in Psalm 42 is David's words reflecting back. And I want to talk about something that is really profound here. Um, and I'm going to steal a quote from a friend of mine, Tim Mackey. Somehow people's words doubting God have become God's words to doubting people. Read that again. Somehow people's words doubting God have become God's words to doubting people. And I'm going to change that quote, and I'm going to say somehow people's broken words have become God's words to broken people. So in Psalm 42, it's like David's like kind of going back and forth in his mania of, where are you, God? My bones are crushed. Uh, you know, to, I will praise you. My hope is in you. And, you know, this is God's word to us. And I think this is kind of the point of the Psalms is we get to look at people's broken words so that we can process through our brokenness, through our broken words. And so somehow people's broken words have become God's words to broken people. So let's read through Psalm 42 step by step. Um, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for the living God. I don't want you to picture a deer on Mount Hood or like in the coastal range where there's like streams and rivers everywhere and they can just hum the hum, oh yeah, I'm kind of thirsty, I'll take a drink. This is, uh, this is in Jerusalem, in the hills near Jerusalem and in, during the hot, dry seasons, there's probably very few places for the deer to drink. And David is in these hills and the other thing about the water sources is when, when, like, let's think of a deer maybe more in eastern Oregon, those of you that hunt, Dave. My buddy Dave's here. He's a hunter. Um, during the summer months, those places where the deer can easily drink, they're going to have predators there laying in wait, and the deer knows that. And, um, you know, you think about, like, the nature shows where, like, in Africa where the all the wetlands shrink to like this tiny little thing, and then, and then the little antelope comes to eat, and a crocodile just, you know, that kind of idea. So, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. This is David's experience. He's, he's in a time of drought. Moving on. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? When can I go and meet with God? Where would David have met with God before this point? He would have met with him in the temple, and now he's away from Jerusalem, away from the temple he built. Um, You know, he's, he's facing moral failure and realizing that he, he doesn't, he doesn't stand for an example of the Lord anymore. He's, he's, he's completely failed. And he has people saying, where is your God? You're, you're, you are a crock. Have you ever experienced that when you fall in sin and you just kind of think to yourself, what kind of example of Christ am I? 
This is the experience David's having. Next slide. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One, the temple, with shouts of joy and praise amongst the the festival throng. He's remembering what is behind. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise my Savior and my God. And this portion of the psalm repeats itself at the very end. So whenever we have poetry like this that repeats, it's, it's to amplify the idea. And I think the idea here is that in the, in the midst of suffering and feeling downcast, um, or, or you know, dealing with depression or anxiety or stress or crisis, um, there's two things happening. You know, you're, you're feeling this way, but you're also saying to yourself, come on, why, why can't you just wake up? Why can't you just, you know, snap out of it? And, and here we see David is, is doing this to himself, but he's, he's also trying to tell himself, put your hope in God. And, and being resolved, I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. How many people use the word downcast in everyday uh, language? Um, you know, I think of like a scrap of paper that I don't need. I'm just going to toss it away, downcast. Um, it's not really a word we use, but I think David just feels like his soul has been tossed away and is, you know, just trash and empty and nothing and stepped on. So let's move on. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from, the, from Mount Mizar. This, um, I read just a little bit on a couple of commentaries, that David is, from these high places, he's remembering the Jordan, and there's almost this imagery of the source of his tears flowing down out of these mountains towards the Jordan, and this is what he thirsts for, the waters he thirsts for, um, to be back in his homeland again. And go back one more. Um, what I want to say about this is David has this resolve. He's, he's battling between feeling downcast and being resolute to hope, to remember, to hope, and praise God. As, as we go through, and then uh, next slide. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All of your waves and breakers have swept over me. Have you guys, has anyone here been close to drowning ever? Is that a word, drowning? Um, so when I was 11, from age 11 to 17, my parents moved to England, and I moved with them. <laughs> they didn't leave me behind. And... Um, I went to British public school. I wore a uniform every day for five years. And one thing that they really like to do in Europe is learn French and German. And so for five years, I learned French and German, and I don't remember hardly any of it because I am horrible at language. Uh, je joue tennis de table. That's, I play ping pong. That's one thing I remember. Um, anyway, but I had the opportunity to go on an exchange trip to France, to a town called Bayonne in France. And so I went to France for two weeks, 
and the boy I went to visit in France then came to England for two weeks and lived with my family during the summer. And when I was down there, that's like, have you, have you heard of the company Rip Curl, the surf company? It originates in the southern coast of France. It's, surfing is really big down there. And so we went swimming off the coast in Bayonne, and everyone was doing it, and it was great. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm like naive. I've never swam in the surf or anything. I think I was 13 at the time. And I go out into the waves, and it was a shore break. So the beach is super steep, and these huge waves just boom right on the shore. Like, it's not like you swim out a little ways, but these massive waves, like the height of that beam, uh, just kaboom, straight on the shore. And Matthew, my exchange student, showed me how to dive under the waves. And, um, and I was kind of getting it, kind of getting my confidence. And then I don't know exactly when it happened, but this wave just, boom, like slammed me down. And I remember my whole body getting just, like, scraped across the rocks and sand. And just, I didn't know which way was up. And I came up for a breath of water, and, or for a breath of water, for a breath of air. And I, what I got was a breath of water because a second wave slammed me again. Boom. And I... My lungs filled with water, and it was terrifying, physically painful, and just overwhelming. And I think this is the idea. Deep calls to deep in, in the roar of your waterfalls. All of your waves and breakers swept over me. I'm completely overwhelmed. I'm com- time after time, I just can't get up. I'm trapped. I'm pinned down. Like, this is the feeling. But... By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Next slide. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Next slide. My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? He's explaining this this sense of just being completely overwhelmed and completely crushed. And the last slide, again, he repeats this, this theme. Why so downcast on my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. David is experiencing isolation, experiencing um, mental anguish, experiencing deep, deep regret, deep sadness. And at the same time, he is resolute to remember the good times, to hope, place his hope in God, and, and he is resolute to say, you know what, I will yet praise my Savior and my God. And, and just for a moment, I want to ask you guys, in your times of distress and feeling downcast, is this your default? Calling, calling what your experience is and just saying, this sucks, you know, this is, this is horrible, but God, you are good, and I will praise you, and my hope is in you, and I know one day I will yet praise you. Is that your experience? I think for me, and I think for a lot of us, our default is we go right to request mode. 
right, to, God, just fix it. Can you just fix it? Come on, just, just make it better. And, and kind of, we, don't, we don't hope in God. We don't put our trust in him. We don't look forward to being able to praise him. I think in, in our, everything in our society and culture is telling us if you just look good, if you just have good things and accomplish good things and everybody else gets to see it on your Instagram, you're good. And what I think this psalm is showing us is be honest before God and put your hope in him and be resolute to praise him. So I have talked enough, and you know the, the title of my um, message was The Significance of, of, of a Story. And one thing I think is so powerful is when we get to experience each other's stories. And so I, I asked uh, somebody in our community to reflect on this psalm this week in light of a difficult circumstance that was in their life. And they're going to come forward and, and share their testimony of their experience in light of this psalm. And, I, and I'm, I'm just praying that this will be life-giving. Let's all uh, have respect and listening ears. Uh, Colsey Simcoe is going to come share. Everyone hear me okay? Um, So I'm just going to warn you that I am a crier. Anyone who knows me knows that. (laughs) Um, So this story that I'm going to share with you started about three and a half years ago. And um, here we go already. (laughs) Um, It started in January of 2015, and I was... 34 weeks pregnant, and so for most of you, or if you haven't been pregnant before or don't know about that stuff, that's about six weeks from my due date. I'm very pregnant, and I had an ultrasound scheduled um, to just check the kidneys of the baby. It wasn't a big deal. You just go in, and um, like the kidneys were like barely out of tolerance at that halfway point, and um, like the worst thing that would happen is the baby has to have you know, see a urologist when it's born. Like, nothing wrong. Well, um, I went in, and the first thing the text says to me is, are you feeling your baby move a bunch? And I all of a sudden had this realization. No, I, I actually haven't the last few days. And a couple days before, I had noticed. You know, I'd been like, wow, I didn't feel the baby move today. I'm like, that's weird. I'm probably busy. I've got two other kids I'm chasing, and and I have this obsession with fear. So I'm like, I'm I'm just being crazy. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be okay. I'm just being a crazy pregnant woman. I've been ultrasound in a couple days. No big deal. But once she asked me this question, I got this pit in my stomach, and I realized I haven't felt them since then. So I laid down, and I'm just like processing this. And Jonathan doesn't know anything this is going on because I hadn't said anything to him, and. You know, it's not the same for guys. Like, they don't, they're not in it. So we sit down, and I'm watching the screen, and this seed of fear is just planted in my heart. And I'm just watching. And I've seen a few ultrasounds at this point before. This is my third kid. And it's just very still. 
And um, I'm just scanning the screen, you know, for a kick, for a brainwave, for a heartbeat, just a heartbeat. Like, I was just waiting for that heartbeat. And I keep squeezing Jonathan's hand. He's holding my hand, and I keep squeezing it. And it's like, women, you know, you want your husband to read your minds all the time. But in this moment, I really did. It's like I wanted to tell him something was wrong. But I didn't want to say it out loud, because if I was wrong, I didn't want to look like an idiot. So I just keep squeezing it. And he looks at me and goes, what? <laughs> and I'm like, I just shake my head. Because I'm like, never mind, never mind. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to believe this is real. I don't want to make a big deal of this. But I'm just watching. And then the ultrasound tech goes, I'm just going to call in the doctor. And I'd never done this before. So... I'm laying there, and she comes in, and the tech is showing her. She's like, well, here's the stomach, and here's the brain, and here's the heart on the screen behind me. As soon as she says the word heart, I sit up and turn around because I want to see that heartbeat. And the doctor says, Colsey, he's gone. And I cannot express to you how much pain I felt in this moment. I cannot tell you how hard my husband and I wept together in that room or how hard it felt to walk out of that doctor's office knowing that the baby that was once alive inside of me was gone and that I didn't know. I think that's one of the hardest things as a mother to to realize that he had been gone for probably a few days and I didn't know. And then I had to go, we had to go and face our two-and-a-half-year-old and one-and-a-half-year-old and and explain to them what happened. And that night we went to the hospital to be induced. And the next day we delivered into this world our son. And as I was delivering him, we both cried a cry that I will never forget. I will never forget what it sounded like because it wasn't... A cry of pain. It was a cry of heartache. And it was a cry knowing that it would soon be over and then it would be more real than ever before. And as I pushed him out, I know what it feels like to deliver a real baby and how their bodies are tight and strong and they hold themselves together. But I felt my baby flop out of me. And they brought him to me in a blanket, and I couldn't help but wait, wait for him to take that breath, to look at me. And I just sat there and waited, hoping that for some reason things would change. Like Peter was saying, that God would fix it. This week I've been preparing just going through pictures and reading prayers that I wrote in the hospital, and I prayed that, God, fix this. But in my prayer, I said, but I know that you already have. Not the kind of fixing that I want, but I know that this is what you have planned. I held him in my arms for 22 hours. And then I had to leave him on that hospital bed and go home. And I think about that moment every single day. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't miss him. And sometimes when I look at his picture, 
I can actually still smell him. This isn't something that happened to our family three and a half years ago because it's something that's still happening and affects us every single day. People with very good intentions will talk about our four children and how we have two girls and two boys. And my heart breaks every time because they don't know about our other son or that I have five kids, whether I raise them or not. So why am I telling you all this? I guess to show you what it looks like to suffer in this life. And my morning is not pretty. It's very ugly and messy. And I have been angry at God. And I've been filled with fear and anxiety that paralyzes me a lot of the time. I've had two children since then. And those pregnancies were very long and very scary for me every day. I've been angry at God. I've doubted him. I've questioned his faithfulness, and I've questioned the fruitfulness of prayer. But I can tell you that 100% of the time, God has never doubted or questioned me. I don't know why we never got to meet our son, Quinlan Godfrey, but I can no longer question why God did it. I wouldn't have our son, Lumen, or our daughter, Ahava, if he hadn't. My kids wouldn't know and understand Jesus the same way if we hadn't had conversations about him. Death is something very real in our home. But lest we die, we have to cling to hope. The psalm says, I shall again praise him, or I shall yet praise him. And sometimes that might look like me weeping in my husband's arms in the middle of the night. Sometimes they might look like holding a friend in my arms while they face their crisis or their pain. And sometimes it may look like standing in front of a group of people and crying in front of all of you while I share my story. I guess I'm here to tell you that in the darkest of days, God is still light. And if you feel angry and sad right now, you will yet praise him. Kelsey. See, the fact is, you guys, life isn't what Instagram and Facebook and society wants us to think it is. Life is actually mainly a series of mundane or difficult circumstances that we need to navigate. And this and 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 every once in a while it's abbreviated by by amazing happiness and, and wonderful beauty. Um, but what I think the psalm is demonstrating for us is throughout all the spectrum of experiences, there can be joy in hope. And so in the psalm, we see David's resolution uh, in three ways. First, uh, he is resolute uh, to remember 
He's resolute to remember God. He's resolute to remember the times he praised, the times he worshiped. He's also resolute to yet pray, uh, sorry, to hope in God. He, he's putting his hope in his Savior and his God, and then he's resolute to eventually one day praise him again. And even if that doesn't mean praising God now, uh, he says, I will yet praise you. And so, guys, as we come to the table, I want us to meditate on this. Don't you think that Jesus experienced this, um, a miniature version of this exile the week that he was betrayed and, and headed to the cross? He came into Jerusalem on the donkey, and everyone was saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then one week later, his friends were selling him for a bag of coins. And he was betrayed by Judas, and on the night of the Passover, he said, here's my body broken for you, my blood poured out for you. He knew that he was going into exile, and he did. And, and as he prayed in the garden, said his, he was sweating drops of blood, and as he hung on the cross, he said, I thirst. You know, as we come to the table and as we sing a few more worship songs, um, I think what this looks like for us today is that we need to consider Christ. And so I just wanted to end with Hebrews 12, 2. I'm going to read it, and let's just meditate on this as, as Kale comes up and as we continue to worship. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, David being one of these witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer or author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. You guys, Jesus hang on, hung on the cross, and I guarantee you he knew Psalm 42 by heart. He was a good uh, Hebrew boy who, who grew up in the synagogue and memorized the Torah. And I guarantee you he knew Psalm 42, and he, as he hung on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I know that when he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done, he was hoping in God. He was resolute to remember who God was, to hope in him and to praise him. He knew that he would sit down, and it says, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Considered him, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the walls we put up that block and shield our story, that close our mouth, that close our eyes, that close our ears. Lord, break down those walls so that we could share in our experiences together, so that we could live out the significance of our stories together. Lord, in this day and age, we're, it 
it's, it's so tempting to fall into the trap. It, it so easily entangles us to put out this perfect image. And then when, when people's stories come into contact with us, we're so quick to try and fix their problems. Oh, well, I read here and there, and all you got to do is not eat gluten, or all you got to do is this or that. And we're so quick to give information because information is so readily available. Lord, help us to stop and slow down and just listen and absorb each other's stories. Help us to learn what it looks like to walk through pain with each other. Mothers losing children, marriages that are broken, children that are rebellious, relationships that fall apart, finances that dry up, Lord, all of these experiences help us to live our stories together. Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. And I pray that as we take communion and remember your body and your your blood, that, Lord, we would consider him who endured such such opposition for our sake. Um, Lord, and we know, Jesus, the joy set before you was us. You were thinking of me. You were thinking of us on the cross as you endured and scorned the shame of the cross. Jesus, we worship you.